good evening, everybody, and welcome to this month's ConnectorCon about continuous learning. Um, my name is Fidi Tekel. It's a real privilege to be here and host um, this conversation with everybody. And we've got a really great constellation of people joining us today, um, gathered from all around the world. Um, just a little bit about Connector. It's a connection platform for change agents uh, to explore and implement new ways of working and also a community of practice. Um, Connector hosts conversations, connections, circles on topics as broad as reinventing careers, social learning, um, all the way to blockchain and AI. Um, so I will just start by introing our speakers and then introduce myself. Um, and speakers, it would be great if you could start with your location and then introduce your context to the topic of continuous learning. And one thing that you've learned in the past year about what continuous learning means to you. Um, shall we start with Harold, Josh? Once I get myself unmuted there, that helps a little bit. <laughs> Thanks very much. It's great to be here. So. Um, I am from a town called Sackville in the province of New Brunswick, which is in uh, far eastern Canada. And uh, just to sort of put that into context a little bit is that I'm about a thousand kilometers uh, east of either Boston or Montreal. If you know the town of Halifax, or if you know where the survivors of the Titanic wound up, is that that's just down the road from, from where I am. And you know, my own perspective on this is that I uh, had a first career in the, in the Canadian Army where I was a training specialist. I designed uh, helicopter training, did that for the first 20 some years of my life. When I left the military, I worked for a university. I did a little bit of uh, research and some uh, applied, uh, applied research. I worked for a dot-com that went dot-bomb. And uh, for the past 15 years, I've been working for myself. So uh, I'm a blogger, which is probably how, my, how I'm best known. I do public speaking, and one of the areas that uh, I've been focused on a lot is uh, something that I call personal knowledge mastery, which is how we can take control of our professional development. And uh, that's we're talking about continuous learning. You know what I what I've learned in a lot of ways because I've been working on this for probably 20 years now, taking a look at how the internet has changed the nature of work. Um, very much, uh, it's reinforced the whole notion that we have to align our working and our learning and that they can't really be separate things. And uh, so it's really reinforced that for me in the, in the past year. Um, I'm seeing now more people being interested in uh, uh, how can they continue to push their profession at the edges. Um, and, and so I think it's sort of like where I'm at right now is I'm seeing what I thought might happen 20 years ago, and my God, now we're in it. Great, thank you so much. Um, and let's hear next from Samantha Slade, calling from Montreal. Yes, fellow Canadian to Harold. Um, so I'm joining you today with uh, two kind of backgrounds that are merging. I used to be a teacher and a pet consultant and ended up at the Ministry of Education. And when I was 40, I just jumped off a cliff and started um, a business called Percolab that's self-managing network, uh, working in the domain of co-design and co-creation. And so our uh, daily operating system is one that's self-managing, which means that learning and development is uh, 
kind of how we function on a daily basis. So I think one of the contexts I'm bringing in is this idea of learning and development not only being important, but the, the, this idea of being horizontal as well. So, so when we're talking about learning and development, often this, there's this kind of bias of verticality that gets in there. And so how to keep that horizontal. And I think one of the other things that um, I've been learning about this year is uh, I had an, something happen for me to the, for the first time. I was working with a client and with that client, we were running a co-creation process. And the people who were participating in the co-creation process were HR professionals. And they themselves decided it wasn't a learning process. It was to get a deliverable. So they chose to get involved to help co-create a deliverable. And it was, you know, like a participatory process. And they decided that they were learning so much that they would like to be accredited for their work. And so they made a case to the professional association of HR professionals who took it on board and said, yes, while you're participating in this work, you're actually learning. And so for the first time I saw it like seamlessly embedded in a really natural fluid way. That's what I'm learning this year. Thanks. And Sabrina, can you, yeah, can you tell us where you're calling from and just to remind you things that, one thing you've learned in the past year about what continuous learning means to you as well as the context of the topic? Sure. Um, hello, everyone. Um, so my name is Sabrina and I'm calling from Paris tonight. Um, so, I mean, night for me. Uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, what do I do? Uh, I'm mining the gold uh, by rebuilding people's inner operating system. That's how I frame it. Uh, so, what, what does that mean? It means that I act as a catalyst, in a way, uh, for transformative, transformative change. And the goal is to support people with embracing uh, next stage leadership. Uh, as uh, we live now in a VUCA environment uh, and uh, that change all the time. And the second goal is to make organizations more agile and more innovative uh, by starting to work with uh, people inside those organizations. And my journey with learning started with um, when I turned actually 30 years, uh, 30 years old. Um, it was kind of a shift in my mind and I was still uh, living in San Francisco at the time and on paper it sounded like I was living the American dream and I could uh, agree with that uh, but in reality I was no longer satisfied with uh, simply being happy and I was looking for something really more meaningful, more authentic, more more aligned with uh, who I wanted to be, actually. And so I, I worked, I followed, uh, after those, those thinking, I, I worked for, with a consultancy that spearheads the, the development of a self-management system called Holacracy. And um, <laughs> starting from there, uh, it just triggered my mind uh, with uh, how do you, applied the same kind of system for organization uh, into individuals you know how do you trigger that shift that disruptive shift not only for organization but also for individuals and since that that time you know i never ceased and stopped to be 
curious and learning and, and yeah so that was my journey uh, I mean when it started and what did I learn what was the the, the biggest insight the last year I think I would say that you know I truly like deeply felt for the first time that learning was like like functioning like a muscle that's how it felt to me like the more you use it the more you use that learning capacity that curious learning capacity the more it become agile and like addictive and and so that was kind of a how to not only knowing it cognitively but also like inside myself to feel it feeling it like emotionally i would say uh, that's what well, that was probably the biggest insight I, I had last year. Thank you so much. And finally, Susan from New Zealand. Thanks, Phoebe. Um, I'm Susan Basterfield in Wellington, New Zealand, and I'm going to uh, uh, actually start at the at the end with what I've been learning this year because Sabrina, you really triggered me uh, around in a good way, sorry, about um, <laughs> how addictive it is. Once you start to develop and use your, your, your muscles in a different way, especially when you finally, at this advanced stage, in my case, found, found the thing that you were, you were put here to do, you know, to actually express, um, yeah, express my gifts in a way that um, really resonate with every, every molecule of my being. So that's certainly, one of the things that I've learned this year and that it's a paradox as well, because I am, I've reached the point of uh, this close to burnout even a couple of times in the past year. Um, but it's simply because this work is so uh, resonant with who I am and it is a little bit addictive. So that's what I've been learning. Um, my story is, I don't know if it's different or it's, it's just you know, another, another story of how I got here. Uh, I spent about 25 years in senior leadership positions in big multinationals like Telstra and Vodafone and IBM and British Petroleum. And in through that journey, um, I I think from a from a quite young age, I sensed that the way that we could work together was different than the way that these institutions taught us. So in the big companies, I was able to influence and create the conditions for the people in my little sashimi slice of the, uh, of the silo uh, to express themselves differently, to not assume um, all of these uh, false walls, encourage them to take off their masks and uh, really bring all of themselves to work. And that works to a degree and for a time until it starts to bump against these instantiated hierarchies of uh, humans that for, for whom there is no compelling reason to change, or at least they've not found within themselves that compelling reason to change. And so I like to say that I'm a slow learner because it took me 25 years to realize this, um, leave and, uh, and figure out my path um, separate from what I'd uh, attached my identity to for so long. And in New Zealand, um, fortunately, although we're all over the world now, uh, I came across this uh, collective of entrepreneurs and freelancers called Inspiral, who are really focused on um, this, using our agency to come together intentionally to amplify each other's work. 
re being really undogmatic and unopinionated about what the work we do is. So for example, I do work helping uh, leaders and organizations uh, start to explore uh, a level of uh, change to something that's less hierarchical. Um, my colleagues work in climate change and uh, teaching, coding, and uh, accountants and everywhere in between. So for me, having found that community uh, to help uh, me feel uh, held and um, able to do more, uh, I'm sitting here today uh, having leveraged that to create mainly from a learning perspective uh, online learning experiences that are more than a MOOC, <laughs> more than a one-off uh, webinar, but actually transformative journeys for humans that are interested in what self-management is. That's me, thanks. Wow, wonderful. Really, really good to hear from all of you and hearing all of you gave such a story rich um, yeah, explanation of yourselves. So to follow on from that, um, as I said, my name is Phoebe and I started off a bit, just a bit of background. I started off in the field of science. So pretty unusual, I think, as a path into new ways of learning and working. Um, I studied I studied networks and system science and within the context of molecular biology. So there is, an, there is a kind of link or connection there. Oh, we've left, lost Sabrina. Hope she comes back. Um, and my first foray into kind of new ways of learning and education was with an organization um, that a friend of mine started and I joined uh, as part of the founding team where we traveled around the world and ran uh, five-day transformative learning experiences for teenagers um, in schools. So we were really going into these schools and creating a space for high schoolers to reimagine what their education looks like and kind of ask us for uh, workshops and on you know, cutting edge um, innovation and technology. And, and in the end, we ended up also kind of providing training for the students themselves to train each other. So it was this introduction to kind of flipping the school, um, the education system on its head and, and enabling peer-to-peer learning and, and self-directed learning and our most popular workshop was actually around learning to learn so we'll come on to a bit more about learning to learn later um, since then it's been quite an eclectic path but for me the red thread through all of the different projects and organizations i've been part of or founded has been learning and that's moved from the kind of teenage age to lifelong and adult learning so at the moment i have been working as a learning innovator slash designer and um, like program designer at a place called Schumacher College in the UK. It's an alternative university. I think its tagline is transformative learning and sustainable living. So that's been a really interesting kind of lab environment to experiment with different, yeah, different learning designs and experiential learning, immersive learning, self-directed, uh, community-based. Um, I'm also part of the Inspiral Network, which is how I know Susan, and I'm really excited to see how we can bring new ways of learning and new ways of working closer together, because for me, they're just totally inextricably linked, because how are we going to have new ways of working if people are still going through the, um, the same kind of industrial education complex, and especially when we 
like the kind of top skills for the 21st century around kind of creativity, resilience, collaboration. Um, so how can we embed that you know, throughout learning, throughout life? So I think that's enough about me. Um, I just also wanted to say a very big thank you to Mara and thank you to all of our panelists for joining us today. And thanks for everyone listening right now and everyone playing back um, or replaying as a podcast. And I think we've lost Sabrina for now, but we'll just, we'll just dive into the conversation. I think we can unmute or, or just jump in when you feel called um, to contribute. So I picked up on, I think something that Sabrina said, but maybe uh, Susan echoed on the curious learning capacity and the muscle of, of continuous or curious learning. And what really stood out to me around that is, is okay, so if it's a muscle, what are, the, what are the tools and the methodologies that you have seen in practice that really um, enable that muscle to train and to, to grow? Um, and or what are the environments that we can create that really enable that, that muscle's uh, strengthening? These are open responses, or are you asking people here? I think everyone's sort of watching yeah. in the queues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I meant it as an open response. If anybody okay. feels called to jump in, but Harold, as you, you well, I, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to jump in immediately here. I, I was just trying to figure out the, the rules. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think if we, well, we Susan brought the point up right about about it being like a muscle. I mean, it might be worth uh, articulating that a little bit a little bit more. If that mm. resonate. I mean, I, I like I like the idea as well. I, I have a few thoughts, but Susan. Yeah, thanks, Harold. Um, it's a practice, and this is something that Samantha and I talk an awful lot about um, because we're kind of all connected. That uh, just like anything else, what what we do is not something that is memorizing facts or even, dare I say it, internalizing it to make it your own, which is sort of another definition of learning. I think that there's a, a true developmental aspect to this where we are uh, uh, creating the conditions for an ongoing practice of curiosity and learning. And for most people, uh, once you leave school and certainly once you leave university, the assumption is that the, the not, not the capability, but the, um, the rich soil for learning evaporates because you get into business, you get into your job, and the only uh, reward for learning, like tacit reward for learning, is maybe to go on a course to get another accreditation so that you can move up to another band that requires that um, to get your raise next year. But I think that more and more, especially, and people have heard me say this before, in the quest to attract and retain great talent, organizations need to get behind, beyond the table stakes of uh, beers on a Friday and a ping pong table and really step into their responsibility is a strong word, but, it, but I'm going to use it because I can't think of a better one, to actually provide the conditions for humans to uh, actually exercise their ongoing capability for learning and development. And traditionally the way that, you know, I love, I love my, my comrades in HR, but traditionally the way that that's done is that every year that they get a budget 
and then they create a portfolio um, that is maybe maybe a list of, I don't know, 10 courses or 20 courses that on the day that you get your performance review, your line manager says, okay, so tick this box about what your ongoing learning is for next year. Which of these courses do you want to do? And no, actually you can't do that one because that's not relevant to the band or the job title that you have. And that's, that's really for many years, especially within corporations, the way that that learning and development has been held. And I think that in order for us to get past that and really for, for people to, to believe or for it to even occur to them that the workplace where you're going to spend, you know, from age 23 until age 65 is that place that has that fertile ground and fertile soil for ongoing development and to be able to satiate and actually um, help that muscle to flourish. Yeah, definitely. That makes, that makes sense to me. Um, I, I think it's uh, that disconnect between the work and the learning in terms of your X number of courses that you have to take. And uh, this is your job in this little box. If it doesn't fit within that box, then we have some issues. One of the things that I've really been working on for many years now are developing models to help people look at work and learning a little bit differently. And one of the models that I use is looking at three areas is that we can learn at work with our teams and our projects and the people that we're there with. We also can learn through our social networks. I'm talking about professional social networks and we get new ideas, new information. We can subscribe to sources. And then the third place is sort of a mix between the two of these communities of practice and which, which is what this group here, I, I think, tries to be as a community of practice. And the way that I define a community of practice is that you know that you're in one if it changes your practice. So that's the, you know, the little checkbox there saying that we're in one. And the challenge I think that we have is that uh, if we look at their 20th, 20th century models, is that everything was focused on the work state, you know, the job and everything like that, and you were confined within that box. We know that work is much more than that. And we know that when we're dealing with complex problems, I mean, you're a molecular biologist, uh, Phoebe, my son is a microbiologist, you know, and they're pulling in things from different, uh, from different areas now. This whole cross-disciplinarity is becoming much, uh, much more essential. So uh, the model that I, I, when I work with organizations and with individuals is, okay, you've got these three bowls or areas. You've got your social networks so they're really fuzzy and loose, getting new ideas. You've got your communities of practice. Hopefully you've got at least one. Uh, and that's a big challenge because a lot of people are not members of a community of practice, which I think is a huge part missing. And then you've got the work that's got to be done. But how do you, with only one brain, that's got to be in all three of them, how do you move the knowledge? How do you make sense of things as you go through finding interesting stuff out there talking about new ideas with other people and then actually changing the way that you work on this continuous basis. And that's the model that the main model that I've worked on, on that. And we, and we worked, I'll try to be as short as possible on this. We worked with Bangor university in Wales. They realized that they we worked with the uh, department of psychology. They realized that their graduates when they went out did not, um, have a network. They was uh, someone into clinical psych, someone into industrial psych. They went all went all over the place, and so um, luckily some of the faculty had taken my workshop, and they said, you know, we like this thing about connecting networks and communities and work teams and stuff like that. Can we do this with our students? And so what they did with the students over the four year program was they they forced them to connect outside the university. They forced them to find professional communities and professional networks. One of the students. 
was uh, set up a blog, didn't necessarily have to be a blog. And uh, she was talking about some certain mental health things back and forth. And over six, eight months as she was doing it, she finally got contacted by one of her readers and asked her, okay, can you tell me at what university you're a professor at? She said, I'm not a, I'm not a professor. I'm a third year student <laughs> in psych. And he said, well, oh, I run graduate uh, program uh, here in California and uh, I'd like you to come and we'll get you a sponsored position to come and do doctoral or uh, do postgraduate work with me. Now, because she was out there and she'd connected, she was able to make that connection. It doesn't mean, so I think that a lot of it is about enabling people to make connections, again, with their networks, with their communities, and connecting the inside with the outside, both inside you, inside the company, and, and outside in all those places. So I hope that wasn't too wordy. I'd like to pick it up with two things, I think. One is that when I first um, um, heard you talking about the conventional Susan, when you're talking about the ways that it's structured in organizations in this kind of very siloed, boxed, permissions-based culture where somebody else gets to determine what, what's appropriate for me to learn, so I'm like having to ask and then I have to kind of submit to somebody else's opinion. And um, I, uh, was talking with this director of a European agency in Belgium and he had run an, um, not even an experiment he just believed it so much he was like well one way to create the conditions for learning to happen more is just to trust people so to just to get rid of the permissions and it sounds radical and simple at the same time it's kind of like crazy and so uh, 60 people in a unit and he just, I mean, they're a part of a European agency, so they had to have a huge bureaucracy they still have to comply to. He just said, um, any uh, requests for uh, whatever your learning initiative and you need a, 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 an approval, they'll just be approved de facto. Like I won't even read them. doesn't matter what's in it. I'll read them. Right. And people were like, well, that's crazy. People are going to start taking stuff and investing in learning. That's completely inappropriate to their work. It's not going with their objectives. Like how is that going to work? And it's kind of interesting the things that came out of that. Cause one, he said it increased people's desire to learn because having to ask permissions, doesn't make you want to go and ask permissions. <laughs> so that kind of like it kills the desire to learn. And two, it increased their, their like, um, their, their conscious desire to be where they were because they could go and actually experiment learning that was completely outside to say, maybe I want to follow this other path. And then they, when they tried it, they're like, mm, no, I'm actually, here's the right place for me or it's not. And then you can leave. Right. So, all of a sudden you were getting more eclectic learning, you're getting increased learning, and you're getting people who are being more deliberate about where they are positioned in the organization. I mean, that's just benefits, benefits, benefits. And then from his end, he was like, he was just freed up in all sorts of time management. He was like, what was the point of managing all of this? It didn't really make any sense. And I tell that story because for me, I, I'm, I'm still, when he tells it, I'm kind of like, well, why doesn't it work like that everywhere? But somehow we haven't got the, the, the trust factor hasn't made its way fully into organizations yet. Um, that was one thing I wanted to share. And the second one is a little bit, Harold, in what you were talking about of these kind of um, informal places going on outside of work and then the formal ones. And we've been playing around with this, this concept of uh, learning circles. It was inspired from a learning expedition was in Finland like many years ago. And from some of the research, this idea that having um, eight 
a, a series of eight uh, commit like meetings or work sessions with a community just the fact that you commit to eight was the number minimum number for some trans internal transformation happen so the idea if you just meet from time to time or you meet four times and stop it's not just enough to have it happen so you can have something very very loose going on but just if there's some kind of container that holds it and just a few elements of like personal learning contracts or something like that and I mean when we've 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 run so many of these now what we notice is that like the learning that comes out is not at all what was in the le initial learning contract because that that's the transformative nature of it but finding places within the system that are welcoming in this kind of notion of um eight uh moments where a community of people who are unrelated seemingly come together and they're like hey, what's the value in that and there is no program other than the program that emerges from what's going on in their learning together and they go try stuff out and they come back it's just a little bit more structured than a community of practice and i'd be curious to know if you guys have been seeing those going on elsewhere I think that's a very good point about the constraints is that if there are no boundaries, then it becomes a free for all and people don't know where they're going. Uh, you need to, and I think the trick is finding out what the right constraints are. It's like haiku, right? Haiku has certain rules and you can do anything within those rules, but we know what the rules are. So, so I think that finding the boundaries uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, John Stepper's been having a lot of success with his working out loud circles. I don't know if you've heard of them, uh, John just wrote a book on working out loud and it's been really picked up a lot in, in Germany, but there they have certain rules, but they're still relatively simple. It's X number of people, you get, to, you get together X number of times and you, know, and you do this kind of stuff and what comes out, again, is not what everyone thought was going to come out from the process. So I think, so, so, so how do you get emergent, um, uh, prop, emergent things coming out of something? But I think if you just throw everybody into a, into a bowl and, and pray, that's not going to, that's not going to, and that's why good communities work well when you've got a good community manager, right? And it's, they start putting in certain levels. So like this, this, this session right here has a constraint to X number of minutes, X number of people. There's some questions, it's bounded. Yeah, I think that there's value in that. Yeah, it really, it really feels to me that it's a balance, right, between the freedom of form and the, yeah, the container and the structure. Um, because I'm hearing, yeah, I'm hearing these ingredients almost to unlock um, lifelong learning, such as trust and also commitment and also rhythm. Um, but then what my mind is also jumping to is with all of this emergence and this freedom and trust to kind of learn and self-guide one's learning, how do we measure um, yeah, how do, how do we kind of quantify what learning has happened so that these practices can be compared or justified in some way uh, to the mainstream? If anyone has anything to, to share on that, if they've seen good ways of measuring learning outcomes that doesn't just completely box that into an old, um, old way of viewing things. I mean, I think that uh, what, what I haven't seen a, a specific diagnostic measurement tool but um, I do have quite a bit of anecdotal evidence that if you can find a way to attach the learning to um, actual work problems and issues. I mean, you know, one of my other hypotheses is that the workplace provides us with um, just like, I don't know, a math problem or an algebra problem. How do we come together to actually do something that we can't quite do yet? And that the, the, the more that 
we create the conditions for ongoing learning and development around the actual business problems, uh, the better the commercial outcome will be potentially. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a workplace uh, performance consultant as, amongst other things, and uh, I've never tried to measure learning because as far as the workplace is concerned, nobody really cares. My, my late business partner, Jay Cross, um, had a saying, he said, you know, if CEOs had a pill so that you could learn, they'd give you the pill. They don't care whether you learn. They want you to be able to do what you can do as a result of the learning. And, uh, and I think that in terms of measuring, it's like the community of practice adage that I have is that, you know, when it changes your practice and that uh, if the learning changes your performance, if you can do better work, do work in a different way, uh, then that, that I think is the measure. We, we get too focused on the details and the learning outcomes and stuff like that. And a lot of those measurements are not very accurate. And so we're, I think we're wasting a lot of time on that. And we don't measure our kids, you know, on their learning objectives, you know, that kind of, but we see over time their performance becoming a better adult, becoming more mature. I mean, there, there are things that, that, that we can see, maybe not measure them perfectly, but we can sort of see them on a sliding scale. Yeah, you're doing better. And I think that that's probably enough in a lot of cases. I do think there's something to be said for, um, from a personal perspective, noticing that you're making headway because what we, um, psychology tells us that we're constantly thinking, uh, we're underestimating how much we've learned. So we go, oh, I haven't actually learned anything. And I mean, I used to just, you know, the basic trick when I used to teach a, a classroom is we would teach art at the beginning of the year, draw your picture first day. And I would just gather them up and I would go and hide them for the rest of the year. And then I bring them out the, the last day and they'd be like, oh my God. Right. And there's like, there's no way they could have seen the journey, like really noticed it, the journey that they traveled without having those pictures. And I think there's some ways as well, you know, and Harold, you say we don't take, we don't measure our children, but we do take pictures of our children because this, and it's the same kind of phenomenon that's going on. So it's something I've been looking at is like, how can you just take a picture of a moment and that's like storytelling or whatever that gives you something to refer back to so you can really have a moment of having a step away to, you know, really take stock of all that you've grown. I think that's part of the whole notion of working out loud or even learning out loud is again, is taking those pictures. And I think that, I think you really good point Samantha is about, about for yourself. I mean, it's that difference between formative and summative assessment, right? So the formative assessment helping you become better, I think is really important. But I think too many organizations turn that into summative assessment and they put a star, a ranking, your performance, your pay, all that stuff linked to it. And that, then that I think becomes self-defeating. If it's an external organization ranking you against others, as opposed to ranking yourself as a learner as you progress, which I think is, yeah, is definitely very important. And yeah, we all need a little bit of a, oh, hey, I'm doing better. <laughs> Sorry about that, my internet just cut out, so I don't actually know where we are at in the conversation. But we have had a question um, from, the, from the audience about, the question is how to make uh, learning in the workplace more interesting for people. So that's quite a, yeah, there's a, I think it's quite, quite a lot of answers that could meet that. I have a quick glib response if you want it. Maybe something Just, with a story would be really great. I'd love to hear some, yeah, some personal stories around what you've seen um, 
maybe unusual ways of making learning more interesting than a course or um, I, I don't think you have to make the learning more interesting. I think you'd, if the work is interesting, people will want to learn. I think that's, I mean, look at us here. We're, we're here, we want to learn, we're connecting, that kind of stuff, because mm. we're interested, we're passionate in it, is that the problem, I think, becomes when the learning is something like compliance training, where, okay, you have to get, you have to be certified Sarbanes-Oxley or something like that, and we're going to make this interesting by putting in some silly games. Um, and I don't. I think that defeats the purpose. Is that yeah? Make the work interesting, and the and the learning will be learning how to do the work will be. In. You, you see, you see how kids want to learn. Want to? I want to see how my parents drive the car or do whatever, or even clean the house. You know, you get a three year old wants to wants to wants to sweep the floor, right? I mean, why? Because they they're interested in doing the work, so they want to learn how to do it. Any disagreement on that? Because I'd, I'd be interested no, in disagreeing. Yeah, I, I, for I, sure, I'd like that. <laughs> yeah, and at the end, and there's all sorts of things also that can can I can awaken the spark of curiosity. I would say, if it's if it needs to be awakened, and one of those just comes to mind is this notion of a learning expedition. And you don't have to go far. Huh? You can be in your neighborhood, but there's something about just being out in the world and going outside of the usual walls. It can even be within your organization. You can do an org a learning expedition within your organization to be, but that notion of learning expedition of going out of your regular place and routine and you come in with like the fresh eyes of the traveler is, um, yeah, I think it has a lot more potential than we're using before. I think, I think that it is also possible and, interesting to think about how again how can we create the environment where every individual is able to actually express what interests them because pretty much everything that could be interesting to to a to an individual has some connection to their work and and, and i know that the point is not to make it fun but if we can attach that meaning and significance to what's meaningful and significant for each of us just by taking a little bit of time to have those conversations I think that that can really be the, the opportunity to, if it's not fun, at least it's meaningful and significant. Yeah, I, I yeah. bring a lot of things back to self-determination theory. And self-determination theory is relatively simple. It says that there are three things people need to be motivated. One is autonomy. So letting people be in control. Like, okay, I can now select my learning. I don't have to you know, beg permission to take this course. Uh, the other one that they need is, is a sense of competence. They have to feel like they're actually good at doing something, right? So I'm, I'm a competent individual. And then the third one is relatedness, is that they feel connected to other people. And that's like the, the learning journeys, is getting people outside of their office, getting them outside of that, and being related and connected to the company, the community, the society, and things like that. So I think that if you can sort of connect it to those three things, um, that whole motivation thing becomes a bit of a mute point. Mm. I would also add that, you know, as a, maybe interesting is one question, but also how to make learning more participatory, because obviously, I mean, we're seeing the total burgeoning of kind of thousands of MOOCs and loads of them are really interesting in topic. Like I would love to learn about, um, well, ancient Greek comes to mind. That's actually not what I would love to learn about, but <laughs> there's a lot of topics I'd love to learn about. But the format for me of a MOOC is just so, and MOOC uh, meaning massive open online course, 
So I'd actually love to invite Susan maybe to speak a little bit about um, the course that she mentioned in her intro around practical self-management, because I'm, I'm really interested in how we can bring the online learning experience, which can be very dry and lonely, alive. I think it's a really interesting thing to dive into. Uh, thanks, Phoebe. And I noticed that Nuria Rojo, who is actually participating in cohort four of the of the experiences on the call today. So, um, hi, Nuria. Uh, so the, the the impulse or the seed for practical self-management intensive came out of my experience in the second cohort of Seth Godin's Alt MBA. And Seth was really interested in exploring the reason that you just described. So why are MOOCs and other online courses, why do they have an attrition rate of around 90%? And one of the theories was that because there's no practical aspect of creating that social contract between learners to produce something. So taking the concept of uh, maybe a theoretical component of the topic every week and creating, the, creating um, small groups of participants to actually work on and deliver projects within a very short time span uh, is has really been the pedagogical um, theory that we've been testing over the last year. And I think that it's uh, worked really, really well. Our attrition rate is about 10%. So normally there's, you know, one human that comes out of 12 or 20 that comes on the course that um, just finds that it's not what they were expecting and, and leaves. But in terms of creating all of these things that we've been talking about, a rhythm, a cadence, it's five weeks, it's compressed, it's focused on topics that um, uh, the, the individuals have to be self-motivated to step into. So you're using your agency and autonomy to actually step in here. It's using the relatedness and connectedness component by building a community of practice, even in a small kind of, kind of um, concentrated container. It's using technology, so it's using the uh, the opportunity for for loose ties to become really strong and to create uh, a sense of ongoing connectedness, kind of globally for the participants. Uh, and we get we get all kinds of all kinds of people. We get CEOs and we get students and we get founders and we get people within organizations that are desperate to find ways that they can you know change or energize themselves. And uh, yeah, so I guess from a pedagogical perspective, it feels like, well, I think that we've got some, some really good evidence that it's working. So I'm really excited about what the next steps are about creating different forms of that participatory learning that uh, I think could actually change the way that we learn in communities of practice external to our workplace, but also inside the workplace as well. Thanks for asking, Phoebe. Yeah, great to hear more about it. And I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm imagining the ecology of all of the different manifestations of continuous learning that we've already touched upon. So learning expeditions, participatory online courses, yeah, circles of practice. And it just feels very real to me that the university model is very fast being quite threatened. And I'd love to hear your thoughts around yeah, what, what you think may be the future of the traditional university. Um, yeah, if you've got any, any thoughts around that. 
like do you think that they it will just that the universities that we have now will continue to have their role or do you do you have any feelings around whether the three-year degree and it's half half life which it feels like is just getting shorter and shorter once you you know you learn something in university and often it's completely outdated by the time you leave um and then just even thinking about the kind of traditional lecture exam written exam format and then people are going into workplaces where they're never calling upon those skills again i mean there's just yeah it's really getting to the point where it seems a bit ridiculous well uh... I think it's important to take a look at why do we have universities in the first place and that really the, the first explosion of universities came about with the advent of print. Prior to print there were perhaps a dozen universities in Europe and that with the advent of print that quadrupled within I think 10-15 years. It was incredible the explosion of universities there um, and that was driven by technology. Um, and I think that we should take a look at, we've got this new technology, this digital electrics around, which is still relatively new. So it hasn't, it's poking at the edges. Um, I don't think we know what the model is going to be. But if you take a look at you know, I, how change happens quite often with universities, is usually the change comes from outside, and then the universities shift. If you take a look at business schools, everyone takes for granted business schools. I mean, everybody has a business school. You can find one pretty well in every country in the world. Well, when was the first business school created? Well, it was created when Alfred Sloan, the chairman of, of um, General Motors, said, I need a way to train my managers. And so he went you know, to the universities and he said, I need a thing to change, change managers. And I've got X number of thousands of managers I need trained and you better build me a school. And that's what they did. And that's what created the whole MBA program and, and, and all that kind of stuff comes from uh, corporations because these were, this was a new phenomenon demanding that, they, that, that, that middle managers get trained. And so I think that whatever the new thing is going to happen is look to the edges, take a look at what's that. So, you know, it's not going to be MOOCs. I don't think it's not going to be this or that, but it's definitely not going to be what it was. And I think that's really interesting is that we're at a point right now where, where we can experiment. And I think that institutions are realizing they're in trouble and they're, they're, they're more open to experimentation than when I went uh, did my undergraduate in the 1970s, right? I mean, it's, they, they're very much open to, be, to, to doing more things. So I think it's a really interesting time for people who want to try different stuff. Um, I don't think anybody's got the answer, so. Yeah, there's, a, there's also something for me around the purpose of going to university to become an academic or to become a researcher. And then there's the, the root of the practitioner of where do you go Where's the kind of university for the practitioners? And my question is also around whether if organizations keep evolving to really become learning organizations and to become these environments that are really rich for learning, then maybe organizations can take the place of, yeah, of the training ground to train. Or associations, and being a or, associations or communities, which is, I think, like, like what's yeah. happening here. I think is mm. going to become more and more the university. You take a look at programmers, which are kind of the edge, 75% of programmers are, are self-taught, right? That's a huge number. Wow. And I think that you're going to, why aren't other professionals self-taught? Well, why can't they become? I mean, and there might be regulatory reasons and safety reasons, things like that. But you know, I think that we're gonna see more of that happening, but we can't teach ourselves alone, right? We need our social, connections and trusted relationships and helpers and coaches and guides. I know there was a mentor, mentoring question that was asked. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, if you, if you ask people how, how they've learned in the last 10 years or something like that, how much of it was from formal education, how much through experience, 
how much from exposure to new things, trying different things out. And I would say that probably the smallest percentage is from edu formal education. Sam, it would be great to hear a bit about Percolab and, and yeah, the ways that Percolab connects to the idea of a learning organization, if you felt like sharing. I was just, the thing that was coming up for me is like there's some underlying assumptions that um, are uh, within universities right now that maybe need to be questioned. And it's almost like we don't see what we don't see until we see it. And I'm going to refer back to my learning expedition in Finland. Um, the thing that struck me the absolute most, and I, it just still sticks with me today, is it was this special program called Timikatemia in Yavaskala, Finland. And they had um, this notion of giving uh, a tuition bill to a team to, to take care of collectively. And what I thought was intriguing about that was they were taking the unit of which the program was structured around as collective instead of individual. And I was like, oh, now we're getting at something that's really interesting. This means that this program has at its core this idea that we need to develop our capacity to collaborate as human beings. And how can a university or a workplace not be preoccupied with that? And if you're preoccupied about that, then it's not something you're just going to have everybody go to take lectures and read books about it. You need to be embodying the content or the, what your learning intention is as much as possible. So um, if, if we're really serious about learning how to collaborate and be collected together, then we need to be in difficult collaborating and collective places to get better at this. That's, uh, that is, that's the double, yeah. And that also answers the Percolab question, which is a place that, you know, we're intentionally being in a difficult collective collaborative place with all the ups and downs and uh, opportunities for, for uh, individual and collective growth. And in a way that we, I mean, I don't think I've had that anywhere else. That's what we're offering to ourselves. And not to say it's easy, but I think it's absolutely critically important. Yeah, Team Academy has, has the advantage of they have to create a business at the end of it. There's a real group collective output that they have to create, right? And I think that, that, that there's the disconnect, I think, with formal, with other universities is that it's, you know, you have to master a body of knowledge. So maybe that's the tension between mastering a body of knowledge and collectively creating something which I think is wonderful. I think that that, I mean, the team Academy model really is, you know, I, th I think a, a good view of the future. I know they're exporting the model to other places, but, um, uh, but it does put into question the whole notion of mastering a discipline on your own, which being, I mean, it does, it, it questions the Academy. Yeah. And there's, there's something else that could be interesting to just point out in Canada, we have, um, a, a large Canadian foundation that's running a, an initiative called Recode, and it's a, it's a, an exploration on how to recode what a university is. And I, I think it's a really interesting um, example because it, when I go look at universities and what their mission is, there's definitely a connection of contributing to your community, and and to actually say how can we how can a university be within its community and have this blend? I mean. I, I think we'll be seeing more and more where we all have cases of people having these kind of conversations. Some are students in universities, some are community members, and some people are doing it within their workday. 
and that is the future. And so that's part of like recoding our institutions. Um, I think it's something to be looking out for. The future is connected. And look how easy it is, right? I mean, look at us, right? Sweden, New Zealand, Canada, all the rest of the world. I think that we've got a, at some level, I feel like I've got a responsibility to leverage this amazing technology because it's, it's here waiting for those of us at the vanguard that can kind of see the future um, to start to model it and start to practice. Yeah. Mm. So thanks, Mara. <laughs> yes, thanks, Mara. Thanks. Oh. Yeah, and I, I love this theme of network, also networking together, you know, mentors, you know, co-working spaces, co-learning spaces, and maybe even high schools, you know, maybe in the future we can be having high schools attached to co-working spaces and, and yeah, and co-learning spaces for university or student, yeah, lifelong students. And how can we share that process? If learning is happening everywhere, then how can we really share those processes? Well, so it's, it's boundaries, right? In terms of, uh, that's one thing that the internet has done is, right, has broken down traditional boundaries. We're now getting multiple disciplines, you know, five, six majors in a, together, all fields. We're seeing that the, all the boundaries that we had before were artificial. The boundary between school and community and work were, are all artificial as well. And those are starting to be, to, to be permeated. And, uh, and I think that that's, you know, that make, should make for a, a pretty exciting future of, uh, not being stuck in, in, in those things. And again, I think the exciting thing for the next 20, 30 years is that uh, we or you get to build these things, which is pretty neat. Thanks, Harold. And we've just got one final question, I think if we have time for another one, but definitely this last one from Mara to end off asking, what is one thing you would introduce into an organization to encourage continuous learning? So back to the organizations, maybe you each want to, yeah, speak from your, your story. Difficult to narrow it down to one thing. Well, I think the point was already raised with, what was it, I'm not sure if it was Samantha or Susan, about letting people take responsibility for their own learning. Uh, I think it was Samantha who talked about that. Remove barriers. Identify one barrier that stops people from learning on their own. Mm. Could you give one practical example from, a, yeah, from an experience where you've seen that really work? Uh, well, I mean, uh, Bertsorg is probably one of the best examples, uh, which is the Dutch nursing company, and that uh, they don't have any, the, the only mandated training that they have is, is, is conflict resolution, that everybody has to understand is how to deal with people and make decisions, because they're in autonomous groups of 12 people. And then after that, they, that group of 12 people can decide whatever training or learning or education or books or technology, whatever they need, they go out and they get it. They don't have to ask permission. There's no head office to go through. Um, and that means that they are learning at the speed of, that they need to for their patients, for their community. Uh, again, I think it's just removing barriers. We're, most people want to do a good job most of the time. Samantha or Susan, do you have anything to add to that? I think the uh, anthropologist in me wants to speak to rituals. So if we're talking about continuous learning, 
um, just bringing in some uh, learning rituals. So, I mean, that can be anything. It can be taking the time at the end of a project to do a retrospective. It can be taking a moment at the beginning of a project to identify your learning, your learning edge as you're entering into a project. Um, it, it can be embedding, I don't know, feedback moment into team meetings. Where there, the, the, there's so many rituals that we could be bringing into our daily work worlds if we started to truly value the importance of just our daily operating life at an organization is our learning curriculum in a way. I'm just trying to think of something clever to add to these um, wonderful brains. I mean, it is about removing, removing the constraints. It's about creating the, the rituals and the practice fields for, for this way of working and being. I think that, that for me though, there is also something about whether we like it or not, the way that organizations are currently constituted is that it, it does require a, a willingness and the, and the, and the, and modeling from the instantiated leadership. So create, creating, creating the time to do this, um, creating the opportunity for the possibility that the rational masculine perspective is not the only perspective that's valued in an organization and how we can use and recognize all of our skills, qualities, and gifts um, and learn from each other. Mm, that's a beautiful place to close off the conversation. The, the, the thing that was coming up for me was around giving people permission or giving, allowing people to give themselves permission to, to learn and to kind of self-direct their learning. That um, I, I designed a year of my life a couple of years ago as a self-directed master's when I decided to leave academia. Um, and I had quite a few people when I spoke about this experience say, oh, can I do a self-directed master's? Like, can I, can I also do one? And it was just quite a light bulb moment of, yeah, just having that, giving oneself permission to learn and kind of, yeah, to self-direct that can also be very powerful. Um, so thank you very, very much, Susan, Samantha, Harold, and Sabrina, very briefly um, for joining us today. And thank you so much, Mara. And again, thanks to everyone listening and for all of your great questions and looking forward to continue these conversations soon.